Good morning, Grinders. Welcome to the DFS pregame show here on Roto Grinders. I'm Jordan Cooper, aka Blender at Blender HD on Twitter. You can follow me there. And this is the show where we go over a little bit about yesterday's slate. We review some stuff. We go over today's slate a little bit. Uh, you never know. It's NBA DFS. What we talk about now at 11 o'clock in the morning, Eastern time made me absolutely nothing eight hours from now when, when the slate locks. So mostly talk about DFS strategy. So if you're in the YouTube chat, you know I love you the most. You show up here live. The podcast people, screw those people. They listen later, right? You could you could. You could go to iTunes, DFS pregame show, search for it. You could actually listen to this in a podcast form, rate and review it there. But the YouTube people, they're the best people. I see Daniel Hutchins in chat. I see Alex Santi, Trey McRae, DJ Cicero, Jupocalypse, Milo Kaminsky, uh, Kevin Copeland, Mr. Plow, Meat Plow, my favorite guy, Meat Plow's here. And, and they do what they do best. They keep my, my mango juice. It's still the mango juice. Still haven't gotten the regular stuff, uh, the, the apple mango. Someone had, to, I, I said, I, I made the task yesterday to go out and get Mott's Mott's apple mango. And you tell me if you taste any apple juice in there. I think they're lying. I think they're lying to us. Tastes like mango juice, but to keep it, keep it cold throughout the show, hit the thumbs up button, hit those dummy thumbs, hit the subscribe button if you're new here and hit the, the notification bell to know that when we go live in the morning. So, so you never miss this show. So, uh, so I'm looking uh, in the in the chat. Everyone's here. Good, great lineups last night. Was one player away for for Meat Plow. It's always you're always just one player away, right? Oh, two v two. Oh, and just and just hit that guy, right? Yesterday on, on DraftKings was uh, was a tough slate. It was it, it was it was legitimately a tough slate. And I don't want to call it a tough. It, it's a normal slate, right? We're so used to getting value especially with, with COVID and people people sitting and load management. We're used to like every day, if it was a seven game slate, well, there'd be some, you know, three guys would be out from some team, right? Someone's sitting, you know, so, okay. So we're going to get value here and we're, we're going to find some 4K player that really should be 5,500, right? We'll find some, some 6K player that should be 7,500. The sites will misprice someone. Uh, DraftKings was, uh, was fairly, was pretty, pretty efficiently, Pretty, pretty efficiently priced. And that's why you have to make a lot of concessions in order to make good lineups. I mean, we had like Sterling Brown off the bench at 3,200 being 22% owned, right? With Frank Mason, right? Frank Mason off the bench. Of course, Cole Anthony ended up getting injured and Frank Mason played a whole lot more. Uh, he was considered a quote value play. Dwayne Bacon, right? With the, with the, the, mag the magic guys were like, value Rudy Gay was 13 percent you had to find someone for the power forward spot uh obviously Josh Hart if you played him I mean he went he went nuts so he was only one percent owned but you had to find someone like that to fill out your lineups I mean Jeremy Grant and Nikola Vucevic they were chalk right John Wall Deontay Murray who even on a back-to-back -back with uh with Pop he was chalky even I mean, people went to 5K Blake Griffin, right? I said yesterday, I don't even, I don't feel thrilled about playing Blake Griffin, but on the context of this slate, you're gonna have to fill the power forward spot with someone, right? It was either Griffin or Oubre. You don't feel that great doing that. 
Eric Gordon was 16% owned because with Oladipo out, it's like, okay, I guess I'm paying 6,200 for Eric Gordon. So it was, it was, it was a tough slate in comparison to a lot of slates uh, that we've seen this year on DraftKings. So, so construction was key. Construction was very key on this slate because like power forward was weak. Uh, Point guard, you most likely were playing Murray or Wall, but you could have played Harden, Irving. There were a lot, a lot of, a lot of players were going under owned because just how are you going to make that construction? How are you fitting in Harden? How are you, how are you, how are you playing? Uh, I mean, if you played Mason, if you played Miles Plumley, Mason Plumley, one of the Plumleys, I mean, you did great. That basically, basically that that first game, like all the points came from that game, right? If you played Irving, Harden, and like four Pistons, like you did great. But then we got the news that Devin Devin Vassell was going to start for the Spurs, and a lot of people went there. You, you could see I pulled up uh, a bunch of 150 maxers in uh, the pull-up jumper from last night, and I, I always I always say this like I didn't I didn't go there. I had five lineups. I didn't go with Devin Vassell because I think his usage just plummets in the starting in the starting unit in that unit. Right, uh, Murray Vassell DeRozan Johnson Pirtle. Like, I, I'd rather keep Rudy Gay than play uh, Devin Vassell. But uh, you see a lot of people did did switch over to get, get more exposure because it makes sense after lock, less people are likely to switch. So he had only came in at uh, about 10% owned. So I, I think if you're playing, if you're playing the lower stakes, I, I think that was a good move, even though he only got 15 points. Like be more inclined at the lower stakes to take advantage of late news, even if it's just minimal, right? Like, who cares? Well, Devin Vassell, oh, okay. So should I rearrange all my lineups because of that? Now, maybe not all of them, but less people will. It, he didn't get there. I'm not talking about, oh, you should have played that guy, but be more inclined. Would you rather have played a 10% owned Devin Vassell or a 22% owned Sterling Brown when the, what's, the projections were equivalent, right? You're going to play the lower owned guy. I mean, Vooch was chalk in in the center spot, thirty seven percent. But I mean, if you got down, I mean, some people played Cousins, even at at seventy four hundred on DraftKings, and he didn't even see the fourth quarter again. Uh, the guy that was interesting that I had was uh, Willie Hernan Gomez. Where did he go? He, he was only like two percent. He was barely owned. He was two percent owned or something. Something. I, I can't even find him. Where where even where, where is Hernan? Okay, I guess we have an error in here. I don't know. He's, he's missing. He's missing from results TV. Can someone find him? Willie Hernan Gomez is missing. No, I played him because the punt at the, the center spot. That was the most net to me. That was the most natural thing to do with Vooch being chalk. And then you couldn't fill other spots in with guys that that, that were worth playing. Right. So I, I, I had five lineups. I had two lineups with Willie Hernan Gomez at center. And then like pay, and playing like Kyrie Irving and Jeremy Grant together. And then like play being able to play Oubre. Basically a, punting in the center spot so you're able to play. You don't have to play Frank Mason. You don't have to play Sterling Brown. You don't have to play Dwayne Bacon. Where like that's, that's, that's your cheap guy. And then you kind of go in the middle of the road. I played some like Lonzo Ball with him. Like Lonzo Ball and Eric Gordon. Got a little bit more balanced lineups and the easiest way to get leverage was was on Vooch same for Jeremy Grant 
but Jeremy Grant fills small forward, power forward, which uh, who, who am I putting there? I'd rather just play Jeremy Grant at that point. So I know Vooch put up 61 points. I know, I know. And you could have played Hernan Gomez and, and Vooch together. That, that, that was possible. But I made some constructions like, like that. Especially when everyone was going to gravitate towards very similar, like, punt type of plays. Like, there's no reason why Sterling Brown should be 22% owned. I mean, he did well. Right. He got 28 points for for 3,200 bucks. No, he did fine. But, I mean, in comparison, there were, there were other guys down there. You could play James Ennis, right? What's the, what's the big difference between Ennis, Bacon, uh, Vassal, Sterling Brown, Frank Mason, I mean, all those guys down there. If you have a Josh Jackson, uh, Seth Curry, I mean, the Jay Sean Tate, like all, anything like, like 4,500 down, 4,700 down, like they were practically all the same players, virtually. You could have played anyone. So looking at uh, at some, some some sharper players, we could see that, you know, like Mr. Wonka Man, like, like not much Sterling Brown. Like Giant Squid, nothing. No Sterling Brown. A lot of Deontay Murray. That didn't get there. A lot of Kelly Oubre. Terrence Ross, Devin Vassell, Patty Mills. Okay, going. If I would assume, let's see, 38% down here for Patty Mills and Deontay Murray. So playing them both together, I'm not a huge fan of that, but I guess that could work. Patty Mills was only like 4,400. Daniel House, right. Play, play House instead of Sterling Brown. Play Pirtle instead of Vooch, right? We have Pirtle down here. He was, I think Giants was the only one. Right? He has a 1% for E. Hafner. Right, so a little bit less Vucevic, right? So if you're going to play Pirtle, you're going to have less Vooch in your lineups. So this is what I do. I mean, I'm literally, I'm looking at this for the first time. Like, this is what I do. Bring up some 150 max players. Ones that, that placed fairly high. I mean, I go through the screens, look for ones that at least had a lineup in the top, you know, 100 or so, and then start looking at what, what type of constructions were, were, they, were, were they doing. I mean, multiple types of constructions. And see, were they doing constructions that were very similar to what I was doing, regardless of the results? Yeah, I had out of my five lineups, I had two Murray lineups. Okay, I get it. Okay, that, that's there. I had Vooch. Grant, Wall, by Blake in two lineups. I had Ubre in, I think I had Ubre in all my lineups just to fill someone in the mid-range in the small forward and power forward spot. Frank Mason, sure. I mean, like, I'm looking pretty much at my, the lineups that I had. Like, yeah, I didn't have any any cousins. But I had Rudy Gay, right? I had some Don, I had Donovan Mitchell lineup. I had Donovan Mitchell and, uh, and Jalen Brown together. And Brown was barely owned. Where's Brown down here? Because he was questionable. Right, okay, down here. So yeah, some, some, some constructions like that. He got 43 points, but it filled that small forward spot. Like you're playing Jalen Brown over Jeremy Grant or Oubre or something like that. And then it makes it natural that the Boston player, I stack with a Utah player. And I had uh, Mitchell Morgobert with that. So 3%. Same for same, same thing I did with, uh, with uh, Ben Simmons. Like Ben Simmons is in here, right? 5%, right? 5% owned, barely anyone had him. You pair Bear, uh, Ben Simmons. I also had like a, a Ben Simmons or Sean Holmes lineup. 
Yeah, that didn't get there. Sure, I guess that, that didn't get there. But at four percent for Holmes and five percent for Simmons on a on a slate where you know these some of these guys are 40, 30 percent, 40 percent, Murray's 36 percent, all is 30 percent. I'll take the six to one, the seven to one ownership gap. That's it's not gonna happen often enough for them to be seven to one in ownership. So I'll take a shot. Didn't work, but I mean. That's, that's what you're doing every slate. You're taking shots like that, every slate. 90% of the time, it doesn't work out. I know, I know. It, 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 it's a tough life out there. The 10% of the time that it does work out, you're hopefully not just min-cashing, right? You're making 3x, 5x, 10x, 100x in those situations. So going into the YouTube chat, Let's see. Scrolling back, scrolling back. I always scroll back. So feel free to type it in. I'll, I'll always I'll always I'll always find all, all the messages in the chat. Uh Josiah Smith asks, haven't hit hit big in a bit, but out of my 20 to 30 lineups, I always have at least one top 1% lineup. Is this a good sign that I'm on the right track process-wise or just luck? Well, I mean, you could always go into Rotor Tracker and look at your finishing positions and see. It depends on the size of the contest, like a top 1% in the pull-up jumper. I mean, the pull-up jumpers, pull-up jumpers, 58,000 entries. So top 1% is 588 place. That doesn't mean all that much. You'd rather see what's in the top 0.1%, the top 58. If you're playing large field, now if you're playing smaller field stuff, top 1% would be fine. If the contest was only... 588 entries the top one percent would be like top five right <laughs> right that would be fine right even if it was a 5,000 entry contest top 50 okay get you get your lineups in the top 50 that that's pretty good top one percent in these tides if i i mean you guess you still need to get it up there in some some capacity but top 1%, maybe top half a percent, top 0.1%, a little bit more of a judge. But in general, like once you start getting towards those top equity spots, at least near it, it's really various at that. Then there's whatever way the cookie crumbles. So yes, that that is that that type of thought process, that type of analysis is, is the better way to judge for your GPP play. If you're rarely ever getting lineups into the top 1% or more, then you're either playing lineups that are too safe, so they're all getting bunched up by the min cash line, or you're playing lineups that don't project well at all and you're getting a lot in the real bottom. Because you, you're looking to judge over the course of a season. So yes, you, you, yes you're, not gonna, you're not gonna hit big often at all. And you're gonna lose. And you're going to lose money. You're going to have a negative ROI until you get, until you hit one of the top spots. But you need to give yourself a chance. If you're playing large field contests, like the 58,000 entries and, and you're playing 20 to 30 lineups and like almost every day, every other day, you're getting one lineup in the top 40, top 50, even top 100, you're on the right track. I think, I think that, that's, a, that's a good way to judge. If it's been a month since you've gotten anything in the top hundred, then maybe you have to maybe you have to reassess what, what you're doing. Maybe you're not building enough high top top high equity lines. 
let's see. Robbie Steves asks, uh, curious to see as you have switched to single entry three max. Well, I'm switch. I fo I'm focusing on it. Uh, that, that doesn't mean I'm going to keep it that way. Uh, if I'm focusing on finding EV and the cumulative game ownership rather than individual player ownership. Yeah, it, it, it's all about lineups and not players. You, you're always doing it. doesn't matter if it's single entry, three max or large field or anything. Individual player ownership doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's, it's, it's in relation to the rest of your lineup. You could have played all the chalk yesterday and Josh Hart and won. Right? Because Josh Hart was 1% and put up 53 points for 4,400. So you could have done so cumulatively the sum is it's still going to be a high number you have that one one percent guy like that lineup is leveraged enough yet you have another lineup that has has a has a lower cumulative ownership sum and it wouldn't be leveraged enough because it's like a whole bunch of 20 percent owned guys and not like 40 percent 30 percent and a one percent so that's why product the multiplication of it is a little bit more more accurate than for uh, adding it all together. But yeah, if I'm playing smaller field, single entry three max, and I have Josh Hart at 1% of my lineup, I'm, I'm good. I'm like, like there's, there's nothing, there's no, no more leverage I need. I don't need anything, right? That's, I'm done, right? So yes, if I'm playing that, if I'm, if I'm fading Vooch and Grant, and then just building a lineup, and I'm playing a 400 entry contest, like I'm good. Like I don't have to worry about anything. Just build the, what's the best projected lineup at that point? Right, that doesn't have negative correlation in it. Like done, you're you're good. It's just easier. It, it, you don't you, you don't have to get as low in the projection and as low with the ownership in those types of contests. That's why a lot of times in the past I've had issues when I'm not focusing just on that. I'm doing a lot of large field stuff, and then I'm also playing single entry three max, and then my lineups would be like over leveraged. So I'm building line. I'm building lineups for a fifty-eight thousand person contest. Then I'm like, okay, well, let me take the three best lineups from here and kind of throw them into those three contests and then into a four hundred person contest. It's like prob probably not probably not optimal to do. So so when I started focusing on single entry and three max, a lot of times I look at my lineups and go, seems too cashy, seems too seems too chalky to me. So I'm so used to building for very large field contests. And then I see that like, no, no, the, these are, these are lineups that can win. It seems too chalky. As long as, you know, I get a two V two, you know, rip, you know, do something like that. And the ownership sum is, is fine. And the, the projection is like three points off the optimal or something. And I'm like, okay, this, this could win. Yeah, this, this could do it. Sometimes I get a little bit more contrarian than that, but it's not like in the past where a lot of times like in the lineup would be like, wow, it's like way too low owned, which is still fine. It still projects well. But like, do I need to have that low ownership in a 400, 500 entry contest? I don't. Going through the YouTube chat a bit. Matthew P says, I'm shocked some of these sharper guys load still loaded up on main spurs on a three on a three games and four nights in the second half of a back-to-back. -back. Well, I mean, we've seen it work out. Right? I know, I know Popovich is like on back-to-backs and stuff like that, does funky things with his rotation. 
But that doesn't that, that, that doesn't mean DeRozan couldn't have had a great game. That doesn't mean he couldn't have played 34 minutes. It's very unpredictable. But yes, I was more inclined last night to to not to not play uh, Deontay Murray. Just it's very hard on DraftKings to make lineups. Like you have to. That, that's why I use Lonzo Ball in that spot, right? Like Deontay Murray was what 65, 6800, something like that. I'll, I'll play Lonzo Ball instead. I'll play Eric Gordon, some other 6K guy. The cheaper guys I didn't mind. Like I played Rudy Gay. Okay, I don't mind that. I don't mind I, even Vassal. I didn't mind. Like Jelani Walker ended up on a minutes limit, so you were going to play him for 18 to 20 minutes. But yeah, yeah, I didn't play DeRozan. And I, I didn't play anyone. I mean, I think Rudy Gay and, and Murray was in two lines because uh, that's what he projected and he was he was in there. I mean, sometimes he's the last guy like what else am i supposed to do he projects x amount and i'm supposed to leave like a thousand on the table and not play him and play eric bledsoe instead i mean yes i guess i could you're right i could i didn't but i was i was looking to avoid murray i agree with you i was looking to avoid the, the expensive spurs on the slate but i still managed to get get to murray in two lineups Matthew P said Willie was not supposed to close over Adams. Well, yeah, of course not. I didn't play Willie Hernan Gomez because I thought he was going to close. I played him because he was 30, 3,500, 3,200 in the center spot. And he's a good fantasy points per minute player. It was the, the, the value last night was suspect all over the place. You played Sterling Brown and Devin Vassell. I mean, so don't, don't, don't question my, oh, I can't believe you played Willie Hernan Gomez. He didn't project that badly. Even for 18, if he got 18 minutes, that's all I need. 18 minutes is more than a fantasy point per minute player. He could have gotten 22 in 18 minutes. And I look at Sterling Brown. I look at some of these other guys and go, James Ennis, Gary Clark, and go, I think he could beat him out. And then I know that since Vooch is chalk, that I just need Vooch to fail and play Hernan Gomez and just get 22 points there. That, that, was, that was my thought process. Just so happened that Hernan Gomez put up 38 points, but I didn't predict that. I, I didn't know. If, if Hernan Gomez walks into more minutes, he's, he's going to crush. He's a high usage player, high fantasy point per minute player. I'm more likely when taking shots on, on guys like that, on cheap guys to side with the fantasy points per minute guy than the than the guy with the most minutes i think a lot of people do do it the opposite oh i gotta take i gotta tape some cheap 3k level guy do it and and tony snell is starting right it's like tony snell's gonna play 36 minutes willie hernan gomez is gonna play like 18 minutes it's like most of the time tony snell's gonna play 30 yeah great he's gonna play 36 minutes and get seven percent usage it's gonna, you're rarely going to see a game where Tony Snell walks into more usage, right? Just just so happens that they're just giving him the ball and on the three-point line, and he's hitting seven three-pointers. It happens once in a blue moon, but it doesn't happen often. Tony, so where's Tony Snell's opportunity for a ceiling? He's already playing 36 minutes, right, in that scenario. <clears throat> what, is he going to walk into 40? What's that going to do? If anything, he's going to walk into less minutes. But how is he going to? How is he going to walk into twenty-five percent usage? 
Like that, that, that so rarely ever happens. But the high fantasy point per minute player, you know, like we see someone like Jordan Clarkson, right? He doesn't start. But like the more minutes that he walks into, the, the more points you get because he, he always shoots the ball. He has a, he's a high usage player off the bench. Terrence Ross, like those types of guys. Oh, he only, it's, it's only 24 minutes. He's only projected for 24 minutes. But what happens if he walks into 30? Well, that extra six minutes is going to be productive. So I'm more likely to take a shot on those types of guys. Guys off the bench, cheap guys that, that are normally high usage players, high fantasy point per minute players that could walk into extra minutes. Foul trouble, right? I mean, it happens. Some One of the stars gets into foul trouble. Next thing you know, right? Mitch Robinson gets into foul trouble and Nerlens Noel plays 31 minutes. There you go. Nerlens Noel is a high fantasy point per minute player. Since he's sitting there with 35 points at near minimum price. How did you know? You take a shot. Let's go through some more of the questions. Uh, Meet Plow, says Mr. Plow. Good morning, Mr. Plow. I stopped playing those big 50K entry games after listening to the show and theory of DFS. You can still play them. Dude, I played them all the time. I mean, the weakest players are in these contests. There's like 20% of lineups in these contests that are like dead money. So even though the rank's 15%, it's almost in the... These con- the, the big field contests are great. It's just that the variance is, is it's absurd. I mean, look at the price. I mean, it's 100,000 the first, 30,000. I mean, they split this. 10,000, look, you can come in top 10 and get like $2,200, $1,900, right? You're beating out 58,814 players and entries and here's 2,000 bucks, right? So you have to play a lot and you have to, if you've been once a year, that's it. But you're going to lose all the other times. So you can, you could, you could absolutely. Depends on how much variance you want to embrace in your game, which is, which, which is more advantageous. Me, I'm experimenting this year because I, I, I played the large field contest and profitable at it, but it's reliant on binking one or two times a year. And that may not happen in 2016. I got two binks. 2017, I got two binks. 2018, I got two binks. 2019, I got two binks. 2020, got one bink. That one bink makes up for all the like the losing. So it's like my profitability last year was much lower. And it was only on the basis of not having that second bink. So I posited and like, do I do I want do I want to continue? going through the, the, the stress and, and very, and, and swings of trying to bink these large field contests, which I could, I just have to have a much longer outlook on it. Or can I make the same amount of money without having to do this? Playing diversified cash games at a higher level. And by playing the smaller single entry three max GPPs. I mean that that that's 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 what I'm positing. Because if we take a look, I'll even show I'll, I'll show you. 
I mean, I'll bring up my Roto Tracker. I'm I'm completely transparent. I, I just this is my Roto Tracker as of what, like like maybe two days ago. I think I uploaded on Sunday. Okay, so for for the year, right now, see so for the year year right now, I'm up twenty three thousand dollars. Right, but I have a nice you know win in soccer. I have some two nice GPP small field stuff in, in NBA. But if we take a look like year by year, I'll go to dates. They go year, right? Year by year, got to kind of kind of get rid of 2015 because I, I just started playing, right? You could tell by the wagered 4907, right? So it's like the first year, 43,000 profit, 68,000 in 2017. 193,000 in 2018. Is that well, I had, there's, a, uh, there's 100K win in there. 2019, 52,000. But then 2020, because I only had one bink, was just, just under 7,000 bucks. So I'm looking somewhere, I'm looking, my goal is to get somewhere between 50 and 75,000, right? Yeah, I may have a great year like this, but like a 68,000, a 52,000, like somewhere in that range. But this is all dependent on, these are on two binks, two binks, two binks. Can I get there without having to like big, big large field GPP? Well, as of right now, I don't expect it to keep up, but a month and uh, a week, right? Five weeks in, I'm, I'm already up $23,000. Let's, we, we, let's say we cut that to, to 10. Let's say that January was a, was a great month. Let's say in an average month, it's somewhere between five and 10,000. Right, multiply that by, by twelve. That comes to <laughs> right five thousand. That's sixty to one hundred thousand dollars, one hundred twenty thousand dollars, without having one big fifty k here, thirty k there, where it's just like oh five k there, ten k there, the smaller field contest. So that that that's what I'm hoping for. If I get to the same amount, regardless, and I have to minimize, and I'm minimizing my risk doing so, then why not? That's just the way that I think. I'm not in this for, for glory and screenshots. I'm in this for money. But yeah, but don't don't necessarily be swayed to like not play large field GPPs. Like I'm not saying not to play them. I may end up doing both. Probably in baseball, I'll probably play the large field GPPs as well as the single, as well as everything. Baseball, baseball only because it's easier to manage. NBA is much harder because of all the moving pieces. This guy's out, this guy's in, got to change lineups. Like in baseball, most likely by the time you're not late swapping much, right? You're not getting, you know, 15 minutes after lock that this pitcher scratch. You get it once in a while. This batter's out. You get a little bit more than, than it has been, but not as much as basketball. So then at least, okay, now now I could focus on this and then also do that, also make stacks for this, also play cash games, play multiple sites, a little bit more durable. And NBA DFS, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Uh, Rob B asks, on slates like yesterday when there's no obvious value or smash plays, do you add players with a lower smash rate but a good point per dollar value? Yes. When there's limited value, people are going like there's going to be like someone like Sterling Brown or Vassal or whoever, Frank Mason. Like these are going to be guys that 
they project like one or two points higher than other players in that range. And they have a smash percentage of like 18 to 20%. And then there are guys below them that are like smash percentage of 12% and a little bit one next less point, but the ownership difference is going to be dramatic. So yes, on, on, on slates where there's no obvious value, like there's 20 guys that could be equal to each other, but like two or three end up being chalky only because they are slightly better. They're just slightly. Frank Mason, slightly better than whoever else was at 3,300. Just slightly. They were, they were better, but they were projected better by a point or two. But in the grand scheme of things, at, at, at for a $3,300 player, hence Willie Hernan Gomez, he was 2% owned. So I'm like, well, why not play him? If people are playing Frank Mason, I'll play Willie Hernan Gomez. People are playing Sterling Bland, I'll play Willie Hernan Gomez. And I get leverage off of the center spot. So that's exactly the reason I did. It's not like his his smash percentage or his his, his RGB or anything was good. It wasn't horrible, right? It was in the same range as those types of players. So it's a why not play the lower owned one? And you could have chosen someone else. It didn't have to be Hernan Gomez. Just happened to be that for me. You could have played some. I mean, who knows you, who you could have played? You could have played. There were tons. There were other guys. That's why I said James Ennis. He was barely owned. Why not? Why not, James Ennis? Why not? Well, he only had a 14% smash. Well, who cares? The difference between 14 and 18. They all have they all have negative uh, salary implied values, right? So what's the difference between, oh, this guy's one point lower? The grand scheme of things, one point doesn't matter all that much. Okay, let's see. Going through the YouTube chat. Okay, this is this is a this is a decent question. Jamal Farouki, can you quantify the correlation of one lineup with another? In finance, we build portfolios with negative correlate correlated assets for diversification. Does this exist in DFS? So the 150 has interlineup diversification. Yes, you do that's what exposures are. And that's the reason why you use exposures. But no optimizer has like a correlation coefficient for each individual lineup. I, I think they should add that. I said that, didn't I say that yesterday, the day before, that I'd like to have it so that like in baseball, like in our baseball in lineup HQ, you could see the number of stacks that you have. Like you could see, oh, you have five man Boston with three man Toronto. Like you could see that because it's natural. In baseball, most likely you're, you're stacking. So that's going to be a, a core proponent of what you're doing in lineup HQ. But lineup, for, for basketball, you don't get the stack. Like stacking is not as much of a thing. But I still would like to know, like, how many how many lineups do I have that are 4v4s of each other? Or five, or, or 3v3s, or 2v2s, or 1v1s? Like, that's what I would like. Because you could set the, explo- uh, the unique players to one, but that's like, like at least one. Some of your lineups will have five different players. Some of your lineups have three different players from one another. But like, if you set it to one and you run it, it's quite possible all of your lineups are one v ones or two v twos. Yet maybe you want to have some four v fours and five v fives. Maybe that maybe maybe there's maybe there's a setting that we could add to to do that. Is that is it going to be useful? I don't know. It seems like it could be. Where instead of number of unique players, 
Like here, instead of number of unique players, what you're doing is like advanced setting, like how many percent 1v1, how many percent 2v2, how many percent 3v, like that type of thing. And then it would give you the output like that. That's the right way of thinking. Let, 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 me, let, me, let me answer the question is that's, that's the right way of thinking when it comes to diversification. Does, does that calculation exist in any optimizer currently? No. But you could do that in Excel, right? You could e export your lineups, go into Excel, compare the differences between the rows, right? You could, you could, set, that, you could set that formula up and it could tell you. So you could quantify the correlation of one lineup to each other. So you could properly weigh your diversification in a lineups, in an entire lineup build, in, an, in your entire portfolio. Yes. But a lot of times you could do that through common sense just using exposures. Like I know if I'm capping my exposure on Vooch, I'm capping my exposure on Jeremy Grant, if I'm capping my exposure, I'm setting a group to not play this guy with that guy together. Like I'm naturally going to get not just 1v1s. I'm going to get 3v3s, 4v4s. So I'm telling it like, don't pair these two together. Don't pair those two together. Don't play three of these guys, right? And I only want 20% of that. So like you could kind of piece that together using logic in your head with, with the player exposures. Uh, let's see. Oh. Jane Dowdy asks, if you're running bad for a month, do you look at your process and try to change things? I think you should always look at your process. Does it mean that you have to change things? Not necessarily. You should always look at your process. But running bad for a month is welcome, 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 welcome to DFS. Now, if you're running bad for a month, if you're losing a month straight in cash games, I'd probably reassess, right? You're probably like the variance in cash games is much lower. But if you're playing large field GPPs and you're running bad for a month, like, well, welcome, welcome to the party, pal. <laughs> welcome to the party, dude. You can run bad for four months. <laughs> you can run bad for half, you can run bad for a whole year. That's not out of the question. Doesn't mean you're playing bad. That's why studying results DB. Looking, looking at your rotor tractor, looking at your finishing positions. Doesn't mean you have to overhaul everything after a month. Are you running bad or are you playing bad? It's sometimes it's very hard to tell. As someone that's played for five and a half years and playing it, you know, as a primary portion of my income. It's a lot of times it's hard for me to tell. But running bad for a month is not, it's not weird. That's not weird. You're not, you're not, oh my God, I must be the worst player in the world. No. Some of the best players in the world run bad for a year. Well within the range of outcomes. That that that's why that bankroll management's a big thing, right? Oh, 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 I'm, oh, I'm doing great for two weeks, and oh, I got to up my play, and then great, you you up your play during the time that you're going to have the biggest downswing of your life. Like that that's that's not that's not the best way to go. Uh, Sean Rogers says, after yesterday's conversation about why we should play multiple sites, I played DK for the first time. FanDuel single entries fell short, but DK single entries made me very profitable overall for the night. Thank you. Right, diversifying. You're trying to, you're trying to minimize your risk by diversifying. You're trying to minimize the variance by 
diversifying. You're going to be capping your upside, right? Be much better to just shove your money in. If you take a look yesterday, for instance, in cash games, right? Has haven't haven't we been seeing on the on the pregame show? Because I show it all the time. That FanDuel is like carrying the load. Well, FanDuel last night was horrible, right? FanDuel, FanDuel, I lost eighty six percent on FanDuel, <laughs> right? In cash games, but in DraftKings, made a ton. Especially on the night slate, I, I decided to play the night slate because it was three games. Because I didn't have enough volume, I didn't get enough in, right? Because I was looking to get like 3,200, 3,300. So I decided, like, okay, instead of instead of playing, you know, I there was not not enough soft action. Instead of filling out more on FanDuel, I said I'll I'll just play the night slate on DraftKings. And then I entered some like late, like 300 person GPPs, like for overlay, like at the end, and came in like second place in those. So that's why 262% in those. But still, like, look, I still lost. I lost a ton. So it went from 13,178, right? That was at the end of 2.8. And then went down to 12,513. So that's like, what, a $700, $650 drop or something, right? That's what it looks like. 650 bucks. But if I was just playing on FanDuel, I would be a $1,500 drop. So smooth out those edges, smooth out these curves instead of it being all jagged all over the place. Now, I want to employ capital in the places where I have the biggest edge, and that probably is going to be FanDuel based on these numbers so far. So I shift more of my action on FanDuel, but it doesn't mean I just exclusively play there. As this number comes down and DK starts going up, then I'll start equaling it out a little bit more. But yes, diversification is your friend. If, if you're looking to play seriously, okay? Understand, I always come from the perspective that you're looking to play seriously as an investment. If you're looking to play for fun, for funsies, I'm playing a couple of 10 bucks here, 20 bucks there, 50 bucks. It's discretionary income. If I bink, great. If I don't, it's the cost of entertainment, then do whatever you want. I'm not against that. Just always understand that my approach comes from how do we make the most amount of money for the least amount of risk, okay? And sometimes it comes across as nitty. Yes, I get it. That's my goal, my goal. I told you my goal. Can I make the same amount if I had an office job doing digital marketing and web development? Can I, can I make the same amount sitting in my pajamas and talking to you and building some lineups and watching some games, right? I do watch games every once in a while. Yeah, that's my goal. If I don't make a million dollars, that's, uh, I failed. I didn't make a million this year. Like, no, that's not my goal. If it's great, if it happens, but it's not my goal. Let's see. Couple more questions. Wednesdays, it's usually a shorter show. I, I have a meeting afterwards uh, for the, with the lineup HQ team. We got some new stuff. We see, you got some more tool tips. Look, if you don't know how, what something something is, hit the, just hover over the I button, right? We got, we got tons of stuff in the I button, right? Do we fix them? Do we fix the, the, the player groups? Let's see. Yes. Yes. They, they did. They did my suggestion. You can now obviously rename your builds, but instead of it side by side, it's underneath, right? So you hit that, that you go, whatever you bang your head against the keyboard and there you go. Right, underneath, so you could have a lot more builds here. 
They had it before yesterday. It was on the rename was on the sides. See, I get things done, right? I, I complain and I get things done. So stuff happens. And then you have uh, information stuff. People don't look. Delete this build. There you go. No, no lineups. No problem. No lineups. No problem. Doesn't matter. Uh, Jungle Boy asks, how much are you willing to risk point-wise between players in the same price bracket? Example, player A is 6,500 6, and projected ceiling is 49 versus player B being 6,500 and his projected ceiling being 45. Well, the answer, Jungle Boy, is I don't care about the players because I care about the lineups. Right? How, how lower owned is the guy with the lower projection? And how does he fit? Does he make sense in that lineup? So for instance, you have two guys. You're essentially saying the example is player A and player B are both the same price. And one is four points lower than the other. Well, how much ownership discount are you getting by sacrificing four points? If the answer is you're not getting any ownership there. They're both going to be 20% owned. Well, then you play the one with the higher projection. They fit the same spot in the lineup because they're both the same price at the same position. But if the guy that's four points higher is also, you know, that guy's 40% owned and the other guy is 4% owned. In that line, depends on the lineup that you're, now it starts depending on the lineup that you're playing them in. Okay? Because in a vacuum, you'd say, oh, why not take the lower owned guy? He projects for four points lower, but he's 10 times less owned. I should be taking that guy. Yes, you should be taking that guy if the rest of your lineup is too chalky, where you need the leverage. The leverage is more important to you than the projection. But let's say you're let's say you have a lineup with that already fades the chalky guy. That has a you there's enough leverage already in the lineup that you're playing. Well, now you want to play the guy with the higher projection. You've already gotten enough leverage for the contest you're in. You're already, you don't need any more. You don't, to sacrifice another four points for 36% ownership less, you don't, you don't need it. You'd rather have the raw, you'd rather have the points at that point. So in that type of lineup, you're going to play the 40% owned guy that has a four point higher, higher projection. This is what I mean by lineups, not players. So you're not judging between those two players. What's the lineup you're playing him in? What does that already look like? If it was yesterday, for instance, right? We take a look at ownership yesterday. Like if you were already playing Jeremy Grant, Nikola Vucevic, Deontay Murray, John Wall, and you're trying to decide between Sterling Brown, like, like uh, James, uh, whoever, Sterling Brown or Willie Herning Owens, right? Well, you're already playing like the four chalkiest guys. Willie Hernan Gomez projects for, Four less points, right? It's the same type of situation. But in the lineup where you're playing these four guys, you need leverage. So you're going to sacrifice the four points and you're going to play the lower own guy. Let's say you're building a lineup that doesn't have Jeremy Grant, doesn't have Nikola Vucevic in it. Like it doesn't have either of these two in it. Now you're going to play Sterling Brown. You don't need to sacrifice any anymore. You don't, you, 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 don't, you don't need the leverage. You need the points now. So in that lineup, you're more likely to play Sterling Brown and not Willie Herman Gomez. So these, these decisions that you make 
for DFS lineups are not 1v1s. They depend on the, the lineup that you're playing and the contest that it's in. You have to start with what contest, what lineup, what players, not the other way around. Most people think the other way around. What players do I want to play? And then how do I fit them in a lineup? And then what contest are they in? That's the wrong way of thinking. Start with the contest, then the lineups. Then you figure out what players fit the lineup that I need that would be plus EV in this contest. There could be a thousand combinations, right? You could have one this way, one that way, one this way, one that way. You could play, right? That, that, that example that you have with player A and player B, you can make a lineup with player A. That's mathematically equivalent to a lineup with player B. It just depends on the rest of your lineup. So it's not a matter of do we choose between player A or player B? So what, which player did, are you prioritizing in this specific lineup for this specific contest? You already have other slots filled in. Do I need points or do I need leverage? Do I need projection? Do I need relative value? Well, if you need projection, because you already have enough relative value, play the higher projected guy. If you don't have enough leverage, but you have a high enough projection, then you need leverage. So you pick the second guy. Okay. Let's see. Any last questions before we get out of here? Let's see. The best GPP player makes how much in a year? That's Brian C. That's, that's who knows. The best, it depends what stakes you're at. I mean, you think you should be thinking in terms of ROI, not like raw money. If you're only playing the quarter arcade, you're probably not going to make $100,000 this year. But in comparison to the quarter arcade, if you were to make 20000 that would be like, whoa, that's, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of ROI. Free copyright music, which is, that can't be your real name, right? That can't be really. Why don't everyone use their real name on YouTube? What am I supposed to call you? Is copyright your is your middle name? FCM, free copyright music, right? Mr. Music. Mm. So starting with the tournament lineup players, how would you build a lineup for a small contest versus a large contest? Well, a small contest needs less leverage. Large contest needs more leverage. I've gone through, I've gone through this before. I go through it in my, in my, in my course, smaller contests, you don't, you, you're, you'd rather have more projection. You don't need a million, you don't need millions of leverage. I need to play seven to seven, 1% on guys in a 300 bank contest. You don't, you don't need that. You don't need as much leverage. You could, don't have to sacrifice that much median in smaller field contests. In large field contests, you do, right? I mean, that's, that's just the game theory of DFS, which is what you could pick up. Theory of DFS.com, 15 hours, audio masterclass. It's a lot of the concepts that I talk about on this show, and but it's a little bit more structured process, structured education. You have me in your pocket. Me and James McCool, we go over everything, right? Game objectives, player selection, expected value, leverage, correlation, construction, risk management, exploits, psychology, miscellaneous chapter with a whole bunch of stuff, right? You have all the table of contests here, table of contents. Because I'm going to pick it up. If you're having a hard time grasping some of these concepts, here you go. This is the best way to learn. You can learn on your own. You could piece stuff together. That's, I mean, that's how I did it. 
If you want a nice structured education. And the game theory of daily fantasy sports, doesn't matter if it's NBA, doesn't matter if it's NHL, MLB, it, it all applies. It's the same thing. Different sports have its different nuances, yes. But the game theory still applies the same way. So go to theoryofdfs.com to pick that out. Free copy. If you want free copyright music, I guess you go to that guy. If you want, if you want to plow your meat, you go to meat plow. Right? You could go, you go there. Mike B asked, when does the theory of sports betting coming out? No, go, go, go get Ed Miller's book. The logic of sports betting. To me, that to me, that's the best book about sports betting. If you want to really learn what sports betting is and how the market works, how sports books work, get Ed Miller's book, The Logic of Sports Betting. That that's I I've read that. That's exactly how it works. So you know, I don't need I don't need to make that. Ed Miller already made it. So go, go, go read his book. You'll, you'll see it's the, it's the same type of concept, right? In sports betting, sports betting, people are like, well, what are the picks? There are no picks. There are, there are no picks. It's what, what's the, what's the valuation in the market? What do you think is going to like, I, I bet on bucks uh, plus three and a half in the Super Bowl. Didn't bet on bucks plus three. I didn't even think the bucks were going to win. But I thought three and a half, there was value on that side of the line. That's it. Whether or not they win or lose or whatever, just as long as I get that extra half a point on that key number, I think I'm plus EV. Of course, most sports books are offering minus three, right? On 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 Kansas City. So it's like I don't there's, there's no bet there. Not nothing, there's no value there. So it's not about it's like like just with DFS. It's not about what who do I think is gonna do well? I don't know. All I know is that based on based on projections that Tampa Bay and and the Chiefs are that it should be a three point line. So if if it's anything off, there's value in betting. So it's not about choosing. It's not about researching. It's not about any of that. Like how could I find the arbitrage between the lines? Right. So you could you could open up you could open up your sports book accounts and across you go to Scores and Odds, which is a, which is a better collective site. It's a partnered with the uh, Roto Grinders, scores and odds, and it'll give you like here are all the prop bets, here's all the lines, here's the multiple books. And you can see if there's anything that's off, anything that offers value at that moment. An hour from now, it's gone. Right? College basketball game. Oh, this is it's an eight-point line. An hour later, it's a seven-point line. Well, all the value's gone. Oh well, right. So you're looking to find you're looking to find the value, and you're going to get edges like so minimal, three percent, five percent. Play a you know your expected it's like cash games. Some 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 nights you're not going to find any value because you're like oh there's nothing worth betting on, right? This is not what I do. I know how it works. The problem with sports betting is number one, you get limited. I mean. The, you're too sharp in some books, you get limited. It's getting the money down, that's the problem. And having enough raw money for that to, to be worth it to do professionally. That's why it's tough. Much harder to be professional sports better than it is to be a professional DFS player. So I'll play DFS, right? Until the peer-to-peer games come out for, for sports betting. Where we can just play against each other and you don't have to worry about trying to beat sports books. But there, but that, that, that's, my, that's my thought. If you want, if you want to learn more about sports betting, go go get Ed Miller's book. 
It's on Amazon, right? The logic of sports betting. Okay, so on your way out, on your way out the door, let me check my mango juice. Can someone go out and get this? Mott's apple mango juice and tell me where the apple juice is. We have to put a lawsuit together or something. It's false advertising. Is it even in the ingredients? It's going to be funny if I don't. No, it says water, apple juice concentrate, mango puree concentrate, and then a whole bunch of azorbic acid and natural flavors and whatever. So it still lists water as number one, which is what it should be. But apple juice is number two. Shouldn't mango be number two? Mango should taste like mango should be number two. But it's cold. So you've been hitting that thumbs up button. Hit hit those dummy thumbs on your way out the door. Uh, we got a, what, what is it, nine-game slate tonight? Who knows what's going to happen? We got some OKC, right? SGA is going to be out. We'll get the injury report in, like, what, two hours and then another one in six hours. And who knows what's going to happen tonight in NBA DFS, but we'll review it tomorrow on another edition of the DFS pregame show on rotogrinders.com. Thank you.